This is the Commercial Property Investing Explained Series, brought to you by Steve Polisi. Find out how commercial property really works and start investing like the pros. Your education starts now. Welcome to the Commercial Property Explained series with Steve Polisi and Andrew Bean. How are you, Stevie? I'm good, man. I've got a, what, a seven-week-old now, so just the usual not sleeping, trying to feed, cleaning poos. That's pretty much daily life now and fitting in work around it. <laughs> That's it. So it's been a, what is it, a month now? Months since we last no. spoke to you, sorry. Yeah. yeah what have you learned? And have you any had any aha moments in that one month since we last spoke? No, I'm really good at changing diapers, but besides that, you're just learning as you go. Like <laughs> she just wants to be held most of the time. So every time you're like, Oh, put her down, it's easy now just to keep her in your arms and let them sleep as opposed to going through the faff over and over again. Yeah. All right, quick question. Are you using Huggies or are you using Aldi nappies? <laughs> I'm actually in the UK at the moment, so they're ones called Pampers. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Different brands over here. Yeah. People get a bit funny about like what quality nappy they want to put on their child. The Aldi nappies are like considerably cheaper, and at the end of the day, the baby is just wearing it for a short time and literally going to the toilet in it, so it's not much a big difference to, I, to spend I'm, that more. I imagine as long as it keeps the pukanos in and the way that's, yeah. that's all and then not give a rush. Oh, you have some serious pukanos, uh, you know, in your future. I can, you know, to test uh, to that. So who who would yeah. have thought? Like, was it fourteen episodes ago that this would become baby chat? <laughs> and we would use the word pukano on the actual <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to make it. We'll make a short for this for the Facebook and Insta. <laughs> That's it. All right, mate. So we have an absolutely ripper show lined up for the listeners today. And it's all about actually getting questions from the listeners and answering them ourselves. What do you think of that, mate? Yeah, I actually love this one. This is going to be some really good quality stuff. And I've even had some of my clients text me some questions as well. So we've got the questions from the forums and the personal ones as well. So it should be good. Yeah. So we asked the Commercial Property Community Private Facebook group to give us their burning questions and Steve and I would answer them on the next podcast. And Steve's also, as he said, he's got some questions from his clients as well. So we'll jump right into the first one, which is absolutely a really, really ripper uh, question. And it does get asked a lot. It's from Harrison Gorman. And it basically says, a person has $1 million in cash to invest in a property. Would it be wiser to do a $1 million deposit on one property? or try for three 330k deposits on three properties? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I get asked this almost every single day because it's the burning question for most, especially if you've got a fair bit of equity or cash there. And the answer is it actually depends. So there's a pro and con of each one. So let's just say if you use that one million and you broke it up into multiple properties. So let's say you could probably get $3 million properties quite reasonably comfortably there. So with a million dollar asset, you're going to get a decent lease. So you'll get like a three, four year lease, but you're not going to get a huge tenant. So this is going to be most likely like a little warehouse in like a capital city, for instance. So you're going to have a slightly smaller grade tenant. The negatives with smaller grade tenants is they go one or two ways. They either grow and they outgrow the space really quickly, 
or they close up shop because they're not making money as most small businesses fail. So you're actually going to have a higher turnover of tenant. The good news is vacancy rates are really tight for those smaller, like little industrial assets and things like that. So most of the stuff I'm buying, we're seeing like less than a month to fill it. So more turnover of tenants, but smaller vacancy period. The other benefit of that is you get to diversify the asset because you get to have three different locations, three different types of tenants, three different leases ending at different times. So you mitigate a lot of the risk there as well. And then you've also got three different bonds and guarantees and stuff like that. One of the other negatives is you're most likely not going to get a freestanding one unless you go on the outskirts of a capital city or regional town. So you're going to be part of a body corporate, which takes away a lot of your value add opportunities. So you're not going to have like the subdivisions separating tenancies and things like that. All you can really do is add a mezzanine, for instance, or kind of buy something that's under market rent and push the rent up. So you take away some of that stuff there. The big ones, Andrew, so if you went out and bought a big 3 mil or 3.5 mil is you actually see more variety. So you start looking at to the, the big freestanding sites, the multi-tenancy sites, the self-storage sites, which we've got a question on later, even just the blue chip type tenants. So like we're under contract at the moment on like a pet barn at that price point. You can start looking at the McDonald's in regional towns. So you'll see a lot more variety. And because it is a bigger premise potentially, you can get longer leases. You can actually start getting the 5, 10, 15 year lease type one. So a bit more security there, way more value add as I mentioned before. But then the other thing is the negative for them is if you lose a big tenant, a lot of the value is in that tenant. So you're going to lose a bit of value until you find another big tenant. Finding another big tenant isn't like a one month process like it is a little 500K or a million dollar one like I mentioned before it'll most likely be six months, 12 months, 18 months. So even though you're going to have the tenant for longer because they might be there for 15 years versus the million dollar ones where it's only kind of three, four, five years, for instance, before it turns over, you've then got a longer vacancy period. So just to summarize, I know I've rambled quite a lot on this question. It comes down to a case by case basis. There's a pro and con of each one. A good deal is a good deal, no matter what the price point and just assess each, each deal on its own merits. Yeah, it was a good answer, a good ramble. I told you I've answered that question a lot, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) I actually just want to break down the calculations because it does depend on the person and what they want. So if you're putting down a million-dollar deposit and you say you're getting a 60% LVR, the calculation would be a million divided by 40 times 100, which would leave you with a potential purchase price of $2.5 And going on the other side, if you put down 330K deposits for three properties, that would be 330K divided by 40 times 100, which gives you $825,000 budget. So there's a big difference in those two types of properties, as Steve said. So if you're an active investor and you want to get your hands dirty and you want to find undervalued property that has a lot of opportunity the larger property at 2.5 million is going to be a much better option for you because you're going to be able to find a property that you can work and you can add value to and it could possibly be multi-tenanted, which would reduce the risk. But if you are not an active investor, you're a passive investor and you just literally want to have a set and forget, then the $825,000 property is probably going to be a better solution for you because you have three tenants. There won't be much value add 
I mean, it, that's a case-by-case basis, but there won't be too much value add that you can find on a property of that size because basically everyone can afford that property and it'll be more like a strata title warehouse or something like that, which Steve just spoke about. So as Steve said, it'd be like putting in a mezzanine would be a great value add. But other than that, unless you're finding a very under-rented property, those would be really the only couple of value-add strategies. So it really depends if you're passive or you're an active investor. Personally, I would go for the larger property, but each to their own. Yeah, it's funny you said, Andrew. So I'm actually the opposite of you. I'm actually a very passive investor, as you know. Like all my properties are complete send and forget because with my lifestyle of traveling around the world, like I've done 20 countries in the last two years, I don't really have the mental capacity to run my business and do that on the side. So it's more of a nest egg for me. I want that set and forget passive income. So like you said, it depends on your personality. And even you said 60% LVR, that's you being quite conservative. Like at the moment, you can actually get 80% LVRs with some lenders. There's a few lenders like ANZ and BOQ, Liberty, Suncorp all doing 80% loans. So you can leverage based on your risk profile and what you're actually trying to achieve over what time frame. Yeah, 100%. I was being very, very conservative there. Learning about how commercial property really works has never been easier with so many great resources around like this podcast and Steve's book. And he's giving it away for free if you use discount code podcast on his website. So go to www.policyproperty.com. Use discount code podcast to get the book free. All you have to pay for is shipping. What a great deal. All right, let's move on to the next question, which is a good one as well, from Raul Malhotra. Why haven't cap rates increased to reflect the increase in interest rates? Yeah, so I actually know Rahul. So a uh, really okay. good question. So they actually have. So if you were to buy, like, say, a Brisbane warehouse over about a year ago, you were kind of buying at around a 5 5.5% cap rate. Now that same property is around 6% to 6.5% if you buy really well. So they actually have increased over that time. What people don't talk about, and this is one of the problems with commercial, is they always make this one statement in isolation. But what they're not taking account is rents have dramatically increased. Like we saw approximately 20 to 30% rental increases just last year. So even though we've had kind of 20% increases in the interest rates, the rents have caught up as well. And that's kind of what stabilized it moving forward. And even like CBRE reported, what was it? I think the second half of last year, they had just 8% just in the quarter, the last quarter of the last year. So that cancels it out. Demand does. What also happens when higher interest rates are there, there's also less stock on the market. So if there's less stock and the same amount of buyers, that can keep prices high as well. So there's a lot, a lot of moving parts with commercial, but I always tell my clients, don't try to play the six-month game. Like I've done this now for 12 plus years and 1,500 plus deals. I'm yet to meet anyone who can pick the market to six months. Buy the property and look at it and go, is this going to be in more demand in 10 years time than it is now? And as long as you've got the funds there and your buffers in place, it's probably a good investment. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. And I have seen cap rates increase. They definitely have, but that's with a caveat with on specific sectors. The really in-demand properties, like the properties that you're buying for your clients, Steve, they are still in high demand. So there's no reason for those cap rates to increase because people are still willing to take a lower return on great assets. 
what I think has changed a little bit is the conversation that you have with the agent, the negotiation you have with the agent. It's become a lot easier because there are less buyers that are have the ability to buy right now and you can craft a better deal. I've recently been able to put together a really creative deal that if I tried to do this 12, 18 months ago, there's no way that the agent would have even thought of letting me or even bringing that to his vendor. But it's more about like the environment that everyone is in at the moment is the same. So you have to take what you can get with the negotiating power that you now have. So just look at the difference in like retail and office. Office has been like decimated from, you know, COVID. When's the last time you bought an office asset, Steve? I didn't even buy them prior to COVID anyway. For me, they're kind of like an off-the-plan yeah. apartment. <laughs> you, don't, you don't own anything. Yeah. In saying that, I have bought some previously when they're like something kind of X factor about them. If they've got like a medical tenant on a 10-year lease or something like that, but I take into account that the capital yep. growth might not be there as well. One interesting point, Andrew, which I've actually been talking to a lot of like uh, selling agents the last few months is they're actually getting a lot more interest from owner occupiers at the moment. So because interest rates are going up, but inflation's going up and then the landlords are passing on the rental increases to the tenants, they're starting to look at it being like, well, why don't I just buy? It's kind of like the rent vesting thing in residential. If they can mm. just buy the property and it's cheaper for them to buy than it is to rent, that's why they're buying now. So they've actually seen a lot more interest from own occupiers. So that's keeping the market afloat as well. Yeah. There, I mean, there are markets within markets within markets, specifically like a market like Geelong. It's a really heavy market for own occupiers, like you said, in industrial. So, you know, that market is flourishing right now and cap rates have not increased at all. They've probably reduced. So yeah, you're exactly right. And I, I didn't take that into account, but I do agree with you 100%. It's funny as well, you mentioned Geelong. So I actually am finding it's most the fringe cities are the ones where the owner occupies. So it's the ones where they've got lifestyle. So like Geelong's and Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast and areas like that, the owner occupied market there is huge because all these tradies in that move there and they want to live there and they want to have their business nearby and their, their nest egg is buying the premise that they work out of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, mate, next question from Nick Anton, and he writes, Steve, what are the pros and cons of a multi-tenanted commercial property? All right, so I love multi-tenanted stuff. Main pro of that is obviously mitigating risk of vacancy. So if you buy like a retail strip and it's got 10 different shops in it and they're fully tenanted, if you lose one or two tenants, you're still getting eight-tenths of the rent. So you get 80% of the rent come through which mitigates a lot of the risk. So that's one of the main pros. The other one is typically if you're buying multi-tenanted is it's freestanding. You own the whole site. Like there's no real point of buying like just half of a shopping center because uh, then it's body corporate. You don't get that kind of positive there. So you've got the freestanding. So you've actually got huge value adds because you can renovate the property and make it look nicer and charge more rent. You can do better like online campaigns to get people to the center and things like that. You can even manage the tenants. So you can put different kind of types of tenants in that bring the foot traffic. So don't have three hairdressers in a row. Diversify. You have like the physio, you have the pharmacy, you have the medical, you have the bakery. Get it so as many people come to that center as you can. So that's there. Similarly applies to industrial, but less so with the types of tenants. That's not as important unless you've got a specialized kind of industrial complex. So what I mean by that is like, you'll see a lot of like automotive industrial complex where they have the panel beater, they have the auto electrician, they have the mechanic. 
That's because they can benefit from each other because they have the flow and effect from work. So the mechanic will send it to the spray painter, auto electrician, things like that. So you have that there. But the biggest one obviously is just having the diversification of tenant and rent so you don't lose it. The negatives is sort of what I said in that first question. You're not typically going to get a tenant on a really, really long lease unless you're buying a huge, obviously, like a homewares kind of complex or something like that. So you're going to have shorter tenancies. Retail tenants, if you go down that route, is a little bit more volatile. Like you'll have the tenant for longer, but if they leave, the vacancy periods are longer. But yeah, multi-tenancy is a great option if you don't want. One of the negatives is obviously if you don't diversify, if you're buying that one complex and put all your eggs in that location and that location population dies or the foot traffic to that complex slows down, all your eggs are there. Whereas there's a good argument as opposed to buying 10 retails or industrial in the same location, separate them like in the first question. Yeah, exactly. And Nick Ainton actually asked about self-storage as well. And this flows on from that particular question we just answered was the reason that I like self-storage is because it's multi-tenanted, because you have hundreds of tenants on site and you're not at any risk of having a single vacancy or a prolonged vacancy. And that's really the power of self-storage is the scale. Um, I actually had a question. I was speaking to a client on the phone this week and they were asking me about buying a single self-storage unit at one of these places that strata titles them. And buying that type of unit or buying that type of property, all of the good parts of self-storage are gone. You know, the scale, being able to move the rents, being able to have some vacancy and really push the rents as high as you can. The multi-tenancy piece is a really, really important piece of self-storage and commercial property as well. Yeah, you do. if you buy a single one, Andrew, you're not going to get someone signing a five-year lease and it's going to give you that stability as well. So you lose the whole benefit of buying. One point to note, so some industrial complexes will have, say, one or two of the warehouses dedicated to self-storage. So make sure you check your zonings. If you're buying on and something doesn't seem right and it seems cheap, check the permitted uses because sometimes they'll actually have it zoned as storage, which can basically inhibit your future tenants because you're not going to have the same pool as being able to do mechanics, wholesalers, fabricators, distributors, all that type of stuff. You're just limited to someone who uses it as storage. But one of the traps most people go in, Andrew, is because they go buy a single self-storage because it's cheap. It's the same yeah. trap that people go buy a high-density apartment because they can't afford a house. But you're just sacrificing too much. Buy in a different location, maybe a slightly more regional one, where you do get that versatility. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this particular client was talking about, it was a business called Silo. It's in Wollongong and they actually, it's just all self-storage. And I said to him like exactly what I said before, but one of the disadvantages as well is that you're buying an extremely small like little warehouse for someone potentially. So, you know, it might be 18 square meters or 24 square meters, or you could get something a little bit bigger. But what happens when there is a prolonged vacancy of a lot of tenancies in there is everyone's going to undercut each other to try and get someone in and you're playing like a race to the bottom of the market. Everything about self-storage and multi-tenant commercial property goes out the window when you're trying buying something because that kind of tenancy is going to turn over a lot more if it's a business in there because it's just they outgrow it so quickly. It's, it's literally just a, a garage. So unless their whole business is just storing uh, some stuff they're selling on eBay for a hobby, you're really not going to have a tenant for very long, barely even 12 months, I reckon. 
Yeah, a lot of people fall into the trap of like the glossy magazine buy off the plan from the selling agent. Oh, get this self storage. It's 160,000 completes in six months, for instance. You'd be much better off just going to buy a 20 year old warehouse yeah. at the same price in the similar location where you've got that versatility, that more floor space, more value add opportunities. So, yeah, just be mindful of that, guys. Yeah, 100%. All right. Next one's from David Macklin. He goes, your views on rural motels and caravan parks in small but critical towns that are not mining dependent, towns like Charlesville, Longreach, Cupipedi, etc. So I guess the, the non-mining towns, but they might have some reason why people are going there, like defense capability or something like that. Yeah. So that question flows on really well from the last one, actually. And I'm going to quote you, Andrew. You actually said this to me, I think actually on an earlier podcast as well, you said... Motels and caravan parks is just self-storage for people, which I actually think is brilliant <laughs> because a caravan park is, it's these little metal boxes, whereas instead of having short-term tenants for self-storage where you have like one year or two year, you're actually just doing it over a week. You're getting people that come in for a week, but it's the same concept and there's the same pros and cons in terms of like you need to be able to run the business well, make sure people are attending, keep the occupancy levels high and things like that. But what are your thoughts on caravan parks and motels, Andrew? I do like caravan parks and motels, particularly because they have business returns. So high business returns in a, in a real estate asset, which is always really cool because if you get better at the business or you're really good at improving the business, then you increase the value of the asset. You just have to be careful where you're buying these assets. So a lot of these towns that he's mentioned, particularly Longreach, I know Longreach very well because I have a background working in the defense industry. Now, there's a very, very large uh, defense RAF site there that will never be moved. It is part of Australia's capability to defend Australia. I might be saying too much here. They might not want me to talk about what's at Longreach, but there is definitely a presence of people coming in there and motels, but you've just got to be careful. I don't know if I'd be buying anything at Longreach or, you know, Kubapedi or anything like that. I tend to like things that have a minimum of 20,000 in population, and that's absolute minimum, particularly for self-storage, but it can just get real dicey. And also, it's difficult for banks to get lending on these things where they're really far out. You have to be careful that it's not a single economic dependency town. So it relies on one industry like Wyella in um, South Australia. It's all about metal and producing metal. And that place, particularly if that industry falls over, there's one employer that runs the steel industry there. If they go bust or they change their strategy and they want to move somewhere else, the whole place is decimated. 100%. So it's you want something that has a really diverse economic industries that no one piece of that economic pie is too large where it could really kill the town. Yeah, I think it's also worth breaking up his question a little bit. So rural motels and caravan parks typically like service different demographics. Like rural motels mm. you can be those those like industrial towns and things like that because people come and go for work whereas a caravan park is typically tourism and lifestyle based. So that's where like you get the nice like beach location or regional area where people visit where there's holiday parks and cafes and things like that. So there's slightly two different demographics of tenant, but you need to check everything you check with the self-storage. You need to do with a caravan park or a motel. 
they are tough. It's running a business as well. You'll mm. rarely be able to do it successfully if you buy a motel and just put a manager in place because like all businesses, unless you're involved in it, it can generally kind of fade away over time. Yeah, it is a business. You need to be there. And if it's in a rural place, it's very, very hard to get there and manage things. I would stick with caravan parks personally on coastal areas and motels even on coastal areas as well. You'll pay a bit more to get them. But in terms of travel and people going there, there's always a reason for someone to go there for holidaying. And it could be in a nice area that's in between two major towns. So there's always a layover there. The good thing about motels and caravan parks is there's heaps of deals available. There's great opportunity because there's so many properties available. So if you're good at finding an asset where you can add value, there are a dime a dozen. It's easy to find. If you turn that around to self-storage, they're so hard to find because no one wants to sell them because they're such a great business and such an, an easy asset to run in compared to a motel or a caravan park. Literally the other day, uh, one of my tenants moved out and all I did was get a blower and I blew out the dirt and leaves that were in the mo- in the unit and I was done. And that was it. That's me turning over the unit to get another tenant in there. With a motel, you have staff, you have all the sheetings and the sheets can cost a real fortune. Those beds are there are really high quality beds too because they need to be because you're selling sleep. That's the product you're selling to people. So all of these things really can stack up for cost and payroll Whereas self-storage, it's literally just a tin shed with a roller door. And if it's just a room, you're just selling a room. So it's a lot easier to do self-storage in my mind. And that's why I like self-storage. But motels and caravan parks, I will potentially move into that later on down the line because the opportunity's got a very, very long lifespan for those assets, I believe. Whereas self-storage is a much shorter window to get in at the moment. One of the benefits we didn't actually talk about with caravan parks, Andrew, is you're also land banking. And if you're buying the good location, it could actually pay quite good dividends over 20, 30 years. Can you imagine owning 10,000 square meters next to a beach in a caravan park? Like yeah. as time goes on and population grows, you will get that land banking side, which you don't get the same level if you're buying, say, like an industrial warehouse. Like that might be on a 600 square meters versus 10,000 square meters. So you do have that, but you are regional. So you have to play that game as well. Well, the caravan parks that I like actually have a permanent aspect to them. So a permanent stay aspect. So you might have a blend of some permanent, like a percentage of permanent people that live there all the time, like a residential park. And then you might have Mm -hmm. a holiday park as well. Now, there's a big difference between the yields that you can get from these parks because a holiday park will attract higher returns because it's more business-like and you're charging a higher rate for someone to come in for a shorter period of time. Whereas a residential caravan park will have a lower return, but it's more stable. And these types of parks are really cool because it can have a development profit as well. So particularly the parks that are old and run down and they can be turned into a manufactured home estate, which is basically just a piece of land that you're dropping manufactured houses on. The person owns the house or they buy the house from you and they're paying you a lot rent to have that house, their house on your land. So if you buy the houses and put the houses on there, you can one, sell the house to the tenant so you can make a profit, a development profit from that. And then they will continue to pay you a lot rent. And then usually the people that do this are retiring or they're elderly. 
once they die, their heirs obviously need to get rid of the assets. They sell it back to the park and then for a cheap, reasonably cheap price. And then you can sell it again to make profit again. So it's a really, really good snowball type of business where you can always making profits no matter which way you're going, either you're just collecting rent or you're getting a development rent for selling the houses again. Yeah, I remember back in my resi days, you'd always, all of a sudden find like a, a really cool little two or three bedroom cottage for 150 grand or something like that. And you're like, oh, what's going on here? Then you'd realize it's part of a holiday park and you're just buying in that yeah. park. Yeah. And then the rates, the yeah, rates right. are ridiculous as well because they've obviously got to keep upkeep of the park. Yeah. All right. I think uh, we should move on to the next question from Mark Jolum. And it is, is it still possible to get positive net cash flow with a budget of 600K, particularly with high interest rates? Yep. So re- really good question. I, I get asked this all the time. The, the budget doesn't really matter as much because it doesn't matter if you're buying a 600K or a 2 million or a 10 million. It's going to be the yield that you get versus the interest rate. How much that cash flow is will obviously change on the scale. But just to put in perspective, if you were to buy a 600K commercial property on a 6% net yield and you had a 6% interest rate, you would then be break even. So as long as you're, if you're that, that's with 100% debt as well. That's not with a loan to value ratio lower than that. So if you're pulling out equity, buying on, and this is why I like commercial is because you do the same thing. You buy 100% debt on a residential, it's going to cost you 20, 30 grand a year to kind of hold that property. But let me, I'll, I'll quickly crunch some numbers. So let's say we buy a $600,000 property on a 6% net yield. So we'll keep it fairly conservative. That's 36 grand a year rent. At 5% interest rate, you're 13 and a half grand a year positive. You are neutral at 8.94%. And this is on a 70% loan to value ratio. It'll change if we go to 60% or be more. If we go to kind of a 80% or be less. But just to put in perspective, like interest rates would have to go close to 9% before you start dipping into your own pocket. So for me, that is really low risk assets. You're making your cash flow on the debt that you have on it. So if you're 100% leveraged, it is hard to find or to have it uh, positively cash flow because the return has to outweigh the interest repayment when you're 100% finance. So like when you're borrowing equity from another property and you're using equity to buy a property, that's where you can get into trouble where you think you've get it, you're, you're buying or you think you're setting up a positive cash flow, but realistically, you're just neutral or slightly negative. It's the debt that you have on the, um, the property and that's why you have a 60, 70, 80% loan where the interest repayments are on 60% of the value and you're making the cash flow on the extra 40. It's still a positive. If you get to get a neutral asset at 100% leverage, like you're not going to get that on residential. So on commercial, if you can get neutral, that's a strong position because if the property price doubles in 10 years, you've made a lot of money, what's going to hopefully happen is rents will keep going up and then that'll shift into the, the really high cash flow positive. So you're basically using someone else's money in big dollars to make dollars as well. So you compare that to residential and do the same thing, 100% debt at high interest rates. Commercial looks way lower risk. Yeah, you get killed with residential. Yeah, I agree with you. Definitely. It just depends on what your strategy is. Do you need the cash flow? Are you buying the property to pay for your lifestyle? Or are you working a high paying job and buying a neutral asset and adding value to it and then putting debt on it? That could be a good strategy too. It really depends what you're using the cash flow for, if you need it or not. 
and how long a time horizon you can put on it. If you're putting a 30-year time horizon on it, then being neutral for five years might not be a bad thing considering if you're going the other route with residential. Now, there are obviously different thoughts and the way that both of these assets appreciate in value in capital growth you really need to weigh up like for like and know your strategy before you go into it. But you can, yes, I can confirm, and I think Steve can confirm as well, that you can get positive cash flow with a 600K budget. And you don't, look, realistically, technically, you don't need any money to invest. If you can set up some kind of a creative finance deal where you're getting vendor finance, and you know, there's really a lot of ways that you can do no money down deals. So with 600K, you could definitely do a lot. Yeah. Look, there's probably two scenarios I want to run past people. So if you're buying, say, a neutrally geared commercial asset, ideal situation is rents keep going up, as I mentioned before. We see 5 10 15% rental increases per year, which pushes it into positive. The other ideal situation is interest rates end up coming down. And then that all of a sudden mm. is a little cash machine. So that's the sugar-coated answer. The one you need to stress test for is... If you buy that property that is neutral, interest rates keep going up and then we see some form of recession and the rents come down. That's where you need to work out your personal buffers based on your risk profile. Yeah, and you might be able to find a property that you're buying for 600K and it's neutral, but there could be some huge value add where you're sectioning off a part of it and you're putting another tenant in and that tenant is your actual cash flow. So you might be able to get $30,000 of rent for this new sectioned up area that was underutilized at the start. Um, so it really is, you know, you know, property by property. It's case by case. You have to really look and weigh up at the deal um, to see if it will work and it works for your strategy. Yeah, and that, that's one of the reasons you absolutely love value add, Andrew, is because it's a risk buffer for you. If something goes wrong, you yeah. can do the value add strategy to recover those funds. The face value, the sticker value, the sticker return that I'm buying, I'm not staying with that. I'm not relying on that to be my total best return. There always has to be some extra added value to make it worthwhile. Yeah, no, spot on, mate. All right, mate. The next one's from Sergio Sahalem. And Sergio asks, if you're investing in Melbourne and Sydney, the numbers don't seem to stack up commercially. What are your thoughts there, Stephen, investing in Sydney or a Melbourne? Yep. So Sergio, you are spot on. The yields in Melbourne and Sydney are typically pretty terrible. Melbourne, they're really bad at the moment. And by by bad, I just mean low. So like you are talking like three to 4% typically on a lot of good quality assets. Sydney, a little bit higher. Like you can get kind of four to 5% on average if you go out of the exact kind of CBD area. Recently, we've bought in like um, the Northern Beaches and Penrith and areas like that and got like a 5 to 5.5% net yield. So there are some options there, but the yields aren't of it and the numbers don't make sense. With interest rates where they are, you're not going to be cash flow positive. Doesn't mean it's not a good asset. It could still grow. So same fundamentals as residential. The property could still double in value in 10 years and you can make a good return that way. But if you are looking to build a passive income in the next 5, 10 years, you do have to look at some high yielding locations. So Brisbane and Perth, some really good options at the moment. You can get five and a half to 7% net yields in most asset classes. And then regional, you can get even more as long as you take into account, obviously, the vacancy risk with it there. Yeah, I mean, Sydney and Melbourne haven't really been investable for people that are probably listening to this podcast and, you know, your clients for a while. Like you're looking at like, you know, four, 3% 
um, returns. If you're buying all cash, could be a different story. But Melbourne particularly has some of the lowest cap rates, particularly for retail in Melbourne City. The numbers just don't make sense if you're leveraging this property. And a lot of the time, the assets that are getting bought in these locations are by owner-occupiers as well. And they push down the yields, which pushes up the prices. Yeah, so I'm not, there's nothing wrong with buying there, but you're buying for different reasons. You're not buying for cash flow. You're buying with the hope yeah. of capital growth, which is the crystal ball stuff. But it doesn't mean it's not a bad market. There can There's still really short days on market there. It's not like the yields are terrible and the properties are sitting there for years at a time. There's still some good, strong fundamentals. But for guys like us, Andrew, who are trying to build a passive income to retire early, yeah, buying a high-yielding location makes more sense. And in terms of risk, the yeah. vacancy rates in Melbourne are not that much lower than anywhere else. So like most areas in Melbourne, we're kind of 0.2, 0.3%. Somewhere like a Brisbane, where you get a 6% net yield, most areas are 0.3, 0.4%. So like they're, they're somewhat comparable. It's not like it's a, that much better of a location. Yeah, it's just the perceived lower risk of buying in a capital city. Yeah, I mean, we've already done a couple of podcasts on this actual topic, so we don't need to go too deep into it. But yeah, just if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make dollars, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> all right. The next question is from Mark Lee, and he writes Is there a general rule of thumb on how much discounts that you can be negotiated or that can be negotiated off a vacant property or lease expiry? That's actually a really good question. And depending on when you've asked me that question, I probably would have gave a different answer. Five years ago, I would have said a vacant property, typically 10 to 15% off you can get. So that's where you can make the money because you buy it vacant, you can put a new tenant in there and make that 10, 15%. The negatives with buying a vacant property is you do have to have the extra 10% GST. So even though you can get that back on your first BAS statement, it's a bit more cash in the game because you don't have rent coming in, so your serviceability is probably less. So you need to be have a higher serviceability. You've got to have the extra cash to be able to pay for the GST. And that's where the value add came. But as I mentioned previously, owner-occupied markets are quite hot at the moment. So a lot of the areas I'm buying, there's actually no, there's no benefit by buying a vacant property or even a lease expiring. Like the lease expiring, that's actually an opportunity for those owner-occupiers to come in as well. So it's not the same as where it was. If you ask me in 12 months time, it might be a different answer again as well. But yeah, generally not as much discount as you think in some of the hot markets. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, you should try and get a discount. You should definitely try and negotiate anything you can. 10 to 15% would be a great result. And you've also got to add in your lease up costs as well. So make sure you know how much it's going to cost you to put a tenant in and try and get that off the purchase price. But this is buying vacant property is a lot more of a riskier strategy for a an investor that has a lot of capital backing them because if you've got it wrong you could have you're buying a problem you're buying prolonged vacancy so why is that property vacant in the first place is there a demand for it so i'd say first understand the demand for the property in the area try and get tee up a tenant before you go under contract and then you can buy 10, 15% on a discount with also the lease up costs removed as well. And then day one of owning that property, you can put a, a tenant in there. That'd be the best way to do it, I think. And yeah, there's no rule of thumb. Just try and negotiate as lower price as you can. Yeah, I've actually got a few clients at the moment that we do do this strategy for. 
However, we're buying these properties cash. And that's typically where we get the discount is because we go in with a cash unconditional offer. We're not subject to finance and due diligence. And that's where you can get the 5, 10, 15% because the seller knows if they go under onto a conditional offer, it could fall over in two months time from a short valuation or they find something they don't like or the buyer doesn't get finance, for instance. So going in cash is really strong in this market. Yeah, definitely. It always has been. Yeah. Robert Chandra, how to find out the historical net rental growth, e.g. for industrial rate per square meter in Ballarat now is circa $120 per square meter. What was it 10 years ago? Okay, really cool question. I'd want to ask probably, Robert, what's the premise of asking this question? Are you trying to look back at historically and say, well, if it's growing this much, I can then forecast the next 10 years for XYZ growth as well? Because that's typically not how it works. Sometimes a market's been flat for 10 years is about to take off if it's getting tighter in the market. So I'd like curious to know why you're actually asking that question because that might guide the answer a little bit. But to generally answer your question is go on CoreLogic because you can actually see the rental leasing campaigns. So on any property, you can go back and click the, the history and see 10 years ago, this is what the property manager started advertising the property for, how long it was on the market for, Alternatively, use awesome software like CP Data that Andrew owns, and you can look at that there as well. It's really difficult to be able to go back and find historical rate per square meter and historical cap rates. That's why CP Data exists. Um, and we only do a rolling 12 months. And that's purely because the amount of data that you have to have in there makes the platform a lot slower if we have years. And we've only been doing it for, I think, two and a half years now or something. It is very, very difficult to find out this information. So in Ballarat, for an industrial asset, you're looking at a range of $90 to $120 per square meter for an industrial asset at the moment. And that's general range for like it could be an A-grade asset to a C-grade asset. It could be very, very different types of industrial property. But that's what you're looking at right now. So exactly, I don't know why you need to know exactly what it was because just because it grew in the last 10 years doesn't mean the next 10 years are going to be the same. So I would just focus on trying to, f- to find and identify under rented property, knowing that $120 a square meter in Ballarat is on the high side, try and find something that's around $100 a square meter or $80 a square meter if you can, and figure out how you can add value to that asset by increasing the rates over time. Yeah, you need to look at where you're buying as well, because obviously something in the thick of Ballarat is different to one of the newer states on the outskirts as well. So 10 years is a long time ago. One point to note is when I mentioned on CoreLogic and look at the sales leasing campaigns, that doesn't actually tell you what they actually leased for. It tells you what they advertised yeah. it for, but not what it leased. Might have been a soft market at the time and they actually negotiated $20 per square meter off what they were advertising it for. So that's one of the positives and negatives of commercial. It's a little bit like the Wild West. Yeah, they just didn't record the data like they did for residential. No one took it upon themselves to do that. So, yeah, that's what CP data is trying to change day by day. All right, the next question is from Luke Dimich. What is the worst aspect of commercial property and how do you manage it? Oh, okay. It's probably the best and worst aspect is... Everything is negotiable. So on a lease, you can negotiate everything, which works great if you're the owner and you're getting it to lean your way. But 
if the tenant's trying to negotiate things their way, you can just have bits and pieces that are constantly changing about who owns this part of the fit out and things like that. So there's a few more kind of hoops you've got to jump through every deal. And as I mentioned previously, like we give an 80 to 120 page due diligence report on the property because that's how much things can change on a deal by deal basis. So that's probably for me, it's probably the amount of work that you have to do but then that's also the best because once it's locked in, if it's a long lease, you never have to forget about it again. It's all documented and kind of that way. That, that changes depending on if it's industrial, retail, office space, for instance. They've all got their own pros and cons. But what, what about you, Andrew? What's the worst aspect for you with commercial property? The worst aspect for me would be the harder lending criteria. You need a, a larger deposit for commercial property, which is a barrier to entry for a lot of people. And then the other aspect that is not good is the potential prolonged vacancy. Those are the two biggest risks in commercial property for me is just prolonged vacancy. And also you need higher deposits to get in. Yeah, okay, good answer. All right, Luke is back again for another question. At what outgoings as a percentage of gross rent would start raising red flags? For me, outgoings are somewhat uncontrollable and if they're too high, they can be a major draw during vacancy and a hurdle finding new tenants. This is definitely a case by case one because it depends what you're buying, where you're buying and it depends what outgoings you're looking at as well. If you're talking like body corporate, that is going to be different in different locations. Like if you're buying like I don't know, in a cyclone or flood territory and they've got to have flood insurance, their body corporate's going to be quite high. So that's going to be a higher percentage to buy in a much simpler one. Same thing for like if you're buying a retail shop in a really nicely groomed, looked after complex, they're going to have a much higher one than a very stock standard suburban just stripper shops with no gardens and big car parks and stuff like that. Generally between kind of 5 and 15% is where it's at. But For me, it's not what the outgoings are. It's what they represent. So it's like, what is it actually covering? If it's slightly higher, I don't know, body corporate rates, but they're adding value to the property because they're constantly got a good schedule of like updating the facades and fixing the roofs and keeping the the driveways paved really nicely, then that's something I want to take on board. And again, I'm assuming Luke's talking about body corporate with residential. It's the same argument, but if you own freestanding you have to look after that cost anyway. If you get some issues with the driveway, for instance, you're most likely going to have to fix it down the track. If it's outgoings in terms of council rates, water rates, land tax, insurances and things like that, it's the same concept as residential. So it's, it's very similar like for like. So it shouldn't stop you finding new tenants because you'll be looking at net rent. You won't just be looking at the gross rent and working it out. When you're finding new tenants, look at, okay, what can tenants afford? and what's going in that rate, and then work off those numbers. Whether it's gross or net, it's going to be case by case. Except for in a self-storage facility, I don't think the percentage of outgoings is something that I would really calculate. It's more of what are the outgoings? Are they Does it still cash flow? If there's so many outgoings and it makes it not cash flow, then it's not a good deal. So it's really how much percentage of those outgoings are making the deal not cash flow and if it does cash flow and it's within your accepted rate of return that you're happy with, then a higher percentage of outgoings doesn't matter. If you're happy to take a 5% return on that actual property, then the outgoings percentage compared to the gross rent doesn't matter because you're getting that return. Yeah, generally most of the outgoings, if we're not talking body corporate, 
the market is going to dictate that. It's fair across the whole market. You're not just going to be in one little zone that pays higher council rates, for instance. So it's only really body corporate that's kind of a somewhat uncontrollable. For me, a bigger concern is special levies. When you research a property and you do your body corporate reports, check if any special levies are coming up because even if the body corporate is slightly lower and there's a $30,000 special levy coming up next year, that's going to hurt a lot more than if it's a slightly higher body corporate rate. Yep. Stay up to date with all the hints, tips and tricks in commercial property by following Polisi Property on Facebook. Go to Polisi Property, hit that follow button and never miss a beat with Polisi Property. All right, next one's from Davina Poletto. How easy or difficult is it to finance a commercial property purchase by cross-collateralizing your PPR? Okay, Davina, that's a good question. Typically, I'm not going to answer for brokers, so speak to your, your lender or your broker for exact answers. But general rule of thumb, cross-collateralizing is never a positive. That's to benefit the banks. So if something goes wrong with the property, they've got another property to go after. So I typically wouldn't look to cross-collateralize unless you absolutely have to, and that's where you've assessed the risk and you want to keep progressing your portfolio. I would try to get independent loans, so i.e. do an equity draw from your principal place of residence and then use that to get another property. So similar to residential, pulling out the equity, you just have to have the serviceability to be able to do it. So if you've got the serviceability, you can pull out that deposit. The benefit with commercial is you've got more lending options than residential. So where typical lenders might say no to you buying another residential with that equity, you've got things like lease stock loans and low doc loans and things like that. So it'll give you more options that way. It's not easy or difficult. It's the same process with residential. It's the broker will probably argue with me and we'll, we'll get a broker on in future episodes. However, it's the same concept. Pull that equity, you recirculate it into another property and then go again. Yeah, I think it would probably be a little bit easier with the bank though. If you're, if you're talking to your existing bank, they might be more willing to give you a loan if you're they're going to keep the loan. If you're just drawing out equity, although that can be hard or difficult depending on your circumstance, to tell you the truth, they would prefer to keep that loan within the bank. So they're obviously going to yeah. make that a priority rather than just giving you an, a line of credit that you can do whatever you want with. Yeah, I remember back in my resi years, I actually did refinance, I think, five or six properties with the one lender, which is normally a no-no. However, they gave me an extra million dollars serviceability. So at the time, I was just like, yep, sweet. I'm going. And I actually did cross-collateralize with the property. So even though I just said, don't do it, if you are aggressive and it's part of your strategy and you assess the risk, it can sometimes be worthwhile. Yeah, try not to do it. But if you have to, to get the deal, then it might be the only way you can get the deal done. So you can always refinance and move the loan later on down the line if it's worth or if it's the factor of getting the deal done or not getting the deal at all then cross collateralizing your property um, it's a hard word to say you know if you have to you have to if, if you can get away with not doing it that'd be preferred yeah and just just a disclaimer andrew not financial advice that's just our opinion obviously yeah. go speak to financial advisors brokers assess your risk profile before making any decisions Yep, definitely not financial advice. All right, the next one is from Chris uh, Santa. I'm at the beginning of my journey, so I'm wanting to see how I can transition into commercial property. Fantastic. This is definitely the podcast for you then. I do have a soft spot for self-storage. I like this guy a lot more already. I have done <laughs> the normal thing um, of paying down my primary residence 
but now have heaps of equity. I'm sure that it could be put to better use. How do I go forward? Steve, I'll start with this one. I reckon you should ring Steve Polisi and uh, get him to, to help <laughs> you with this You know, at Polisi Property. What do you reckon, Steve? No, nah, nah, I'm going to give the answer. I'm not going to self-promote. I've got to do enough of that already. <laughs> self-promote? So, uh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm all over Facebook and Instagram and socials anyway, so I don't know. All right, so I always answer this question with clients. When you make the transition to commercial, it's going to come down to three things. First one's what you're trying to achieve over what time frame versus what you've got to work with. So what I mean by what you've got to work with is actually in terms of borrowing capacity because as we mentioned previously, you typically need a bigger deposit for a commercial. So if you're starting out in the beginning of the journey and you don't have an immediate need to have a passive income, if you could go to the lender and get, say, three 90% loans versus one commercial on a 70%, you're going to have three times the portfolio. So even though it might help have the same cash flow, if you get capital growth, you're going to have three times more equity to then transition into commercial later. So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So if you were 18 years old and you know you're going to work the next 10 years, I would say go leverage up to the eyeballs while you've got the risk-free age and you can make the money back and you can stay with your parents if need be. However, Chris, if you're 64 years old and you're about to retire and you've almost paid off your principal place of residence, buying a negatively geared residential doesn't help you. So you might go a lower LVR on a commercial to have that passive income. So the where you transition is really dependent on who you are. The main benefit of commercial is you build a passive income at about the third the time residential Andrew will hate me for this. I wouldn't go self-storage. I know it seems really good in theory. Andrew will attest though, it is a lot of work and it is a specialized asset. So if you do go down that route, make sure you're well-educated in the space because the returns are higher, but it's also riskier as well. Whereas for me, I'm much more of a boring investor. I buy standard warehouses in a good location with really tight vacancy rates on a long lease with a versatile premise. And I tick all the boring boxes because I know in 10 years' time, I'd have to think about it. So it's just to depend if you're active or a passive investor. I would disagree that it's riskier. It's definitely a different type of asset and you need to have experience understanding how it works and know that it's a business and you need to, you know, you need to be involved in that business. Risk-wise, I would actually say it's lower risk than a single-tenancy commercial warehouse or any kind of single-tenancy commercial property. <laughs> just because of the multiple tenancies you have and that self-storage, it's almost inconceivable for it to ever be completely vacant. But it's just my opinion. You know, everyone's got their own opinion on it. I actually agree with you in terms of the property itself. Where What I meant by risk is you really have to understand the specialized asset class. Obviously, if you know what you're doing, you can buy a much, much lower risk self-storage because you've got lots of tenants, as we mentioned before. But buying something simple like a single warehouse it's less involved in the business and things like that. Whereas, as you know, Andrew, like you run a business like helping people self-storage. That's why they pay you. It's a specialized asset that you have to have a lot of knowledge in. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to do a podcast about this or even just talk about it. Is that like people talk about risk like it's exactly the same for everyone. And risk is really something that's personal to you. So say you have a lot of experience running a certain type of business and you go out and take and highly leverage to get that business or buy an existing business, it's going to be a lot less riskier to you as opposed to someone who has no idea how to run that business. So 
when people talk about risk, they seem to like have it on an even playing field for everyone. And risk is really only really dependent on your experience managing or working that investment and asset class. Nah, spot on. One of the things I always say to clients though is it's all, there's also a risk doing nothing. Like Big if risk. you leave your money in the bank, inflation's at 7.8%. So you're actually losing money just leaving money in the bank. So it's a lower risk strategy for me to actually do something with your money. And it doesn't have to be property. Like, yes, go buy commercial, go buy residential. It's one of the lower risk kind of asset classes, but go start a side business, put some money in shares. You will not get wealthy by doing nothing. You'll actually get poorer. So that's the risk in itself. It is a big risk doing nothing. I heard something the other day, which I thought was really cool. Whereas if, if you have a person that's making $100,000 a year and they want to be earning a million dollars a year, the opportunity risk of not knowing how to make a million dollars a year is costing them $900,000 a year. So that's the opportunity risk of not knowing or having the skills to earn a million dollars a year. It's 900000 to you, which I thought was a cool way of looking at it just a way that you can kind of get your head around trying to upskill. Yeah, spot on, mate. So one of the other things that I, I, I heard you touch on in that last question, Steve, which I thought was really interesting, was you said about leveraging up at an early stage, like getting leverage up to the eyeballs at an earlier stage in your life. And this is something that actually caught me out where we bought our principal place of residence before we had children. And then having children and having one of the incomes basically going down to zero because your wife or your, your spouse is, is looking after that child for a good one and a half potential years before they go to daycare, or sorry, probably about 12 months. So what that does is it reduces your borrowing power significantly if you wait until you have children, until you have other expenses in your life. So if you're trying to do this from an early age where you really have no expenses and you have no commitments and you have a good job and you have a good deposit or you have some deposit, then would probably be the time to start getting some good debt behind you because it only gets harder to get loans and to get debt once you have children and then your your borrowing power reduces. And this isn't financial advice. This is just from my own personal experience because I've had two children now and we've been having kids for the last over five years now. And only now is um, my fiance really going back to work and starting to get that income back in. But it did catch me out. So, you know, just wanted to help people um, watch out for that pitfall in future. Yeah. And another point to note, Andrew, is a principal place of residence in the bank size is actually a liability as well. So I'm, I'm not yeah. telling you not to buy a house to live in, but it's not going to help your investing. Like you might have some equity down the track, but in terms of serviceability, it's a liability. You've got a big debt with zero income. So that's the whole rent vesting argument, which we've kind of discussed in the past. But most people think, and it's a rich dad, poor dad thing, owning a house is a liability. Doesn't mean it's not going to mm. make you money, but it's a liability in terms of the now. Yeah. Who's paying for that mortgage? It's you. So it's, that's the big problem. All right. Sergio is back. He's got another question and it's about Tassie. So Tassie was once a top performing state for residential this state, however, also is the state that is declining the most for resi lately. What is the current state of the retail and industrial over there? With the limited population growth, would you consider investing there, Steve? Yeah, so I have bought some in Tassie. Tassie is quite regional. So even though it's a capital city, it's not a major capital city. Like I've, I did a camper van trip a couple of years ago around there, just post-COVID 
effectively where we drive around and even Hobart, like you drive for 15 minutes and you are out of the city. It is quite a regional area. Even though it's dropped slightly in value, the net result's still quite strong for Tassie. Funnily enough, if you actually go back 30 years in the residential space and you look at prices in Hobart to prices now, it's actually still a front runner. It actually beats Sydney and Melbourne, surprisingly, because 30 years ago, where you could buy a house for $80,000, that same house now is four fifty to five fifty. Whereas Sydney, for instance, you have to spend $280,000 and the average house price is $1.1 at the moment. So percentage-wise, you can still do all right. To answer your question, industrial vacancy rates are really tight but there's because there's a lack of stock. However, there's a lot of space for them to build new industrial. So if you are going to buy there, you need to look at what's coming up in the region that you're buying. Retail is the same as everywhere. It's got to do with foot traffic, road traffic, what you're buying. Don't look at the macro stats from the reports that like CBRE and like JLL and Savills and stuff released because they're talking large scale Westfields on spending and stuff like that. If you're buying a local like everyday investor type one, that's got to do with the community that you're buying in. Look at the population growth, look at the foot traffic, but there's still some opportunities there. The reason I haven't bought as much now in the last five years as like previously is Basically, the yields have come down quite a lot. It's actually quite hard to get anything with a 6% in front of it down there. You're normally buying around that kind of 45 to 5%. So I personally think at the moment, there's some better opportunities. But again, case by case, I'm buying a lot in the regional areas of Tassie. Bought like a big warehouse in Devonport for a couple mil where we've got a huge site on a 10-year lease. So you can get some X-factor stuff like that at good value. Good answer. All right, the next one's from Luke Hamilton. I want to know about strategies where I only use equity. Is it possible? Definitely possible, Luke. And this is what 90% of investors that own multiple properties do is you buy a property, it has some capital growth, you refinance that property to get the deposit for the next one, and you go again and you rinse and repeat. Where most residential people fall over is they hit their serviceability limit. So they do it two or three times and depending on your income and your outgoings and responsibilities and kids and stuff like that that you mentioned before, Andrew, you'll hit a glass ceiling. Whereas with commercial, because you've got better serviceability from the property on full dock loans and the option of lease dock and low dock, you can keep moving forward. But that's the very simple strategy. Buy, pull out equity, refinance, rinse and repeat. Where you'll do in terms of strategy, you can do the value add to accelerate that. So if you can fabricate an extra 20% in the deal, that's 20% you didn't have previously that you can get into the next property sooner. And the hardest part is buying the first. After that, you rarely start using your own money because the capital growth outweighs the amount you can save at the time. And it does get easier until you get to serviceability issues. Then that's where you start doing more creative things to move forward. You may even do some form of sell down. So like me personally, I sold off some of residential to transition it into commercial because as I got wealthier, I actually stopped caring about net wealth as much and it was more about passive income for me because me having 3 mil net wealth or 6 mil or 10 mil net wealth doesn't change my lifestyle now, whereas I'd rather beef up the passive income from 100 to 200 to 300 because that's what gives me the lifestyle that I want of traveling around the world and flying business class and staying in hotels and buying camper vans and doing all that type of stuff. So simple strategy, rinse and repeat, get the good growth properties and cash flow and accelerate it. So have capital growth plus cash flow plus your savings plus the value add opportunities. You get all four of them working at the same time, you can accelerate it faster. Perfect answer, mate. Nothing more from me to add on that one. 
The next one's from Kieran Ayerson. I have a question around finance LVRs. Ooh, goody. With different commercial asset classes, there are different risk appetites from banks and other financiers. That's true. What asset types have the best LVRs, e.g. industrial warehouse? Which asset types have the worst LVRs, e.g. brothel? Can you please give me some examples in between those two and provide an overview of what deposits might be required for certain commercial asset types? Really cool question. That's a good one. Yeah, so good question. The banks definitely do have different risk appetites in terms of types of properties and even locations. Some lenders will be too highly leveraged in New South Wales and they'll give better interest rates in Queensland, for instance, So, which a lot of people don't know. So like going to different lenders is actually definitely worthwhile. They kind of do what I do in a way. They want to basically protect their money. They want to kind of lend money out with as low risk as possible and as good a return as possible. So they like the low risk ones like industrial that you mentioned and some suburban retail they're right with as well, but they will look at the location. They'll look at like what the population of the area is, what the population growth is, what the vacancy rates are and base it on that. You'll generally get 80% or 70% LVRs for the low risk ones where that kind of reduces on the specialized. So some of the ones I've seen recently, you actually spot on brothels, petrol stations, a lot of them don't like banks at the moment so because they know banks are on the out because no one's going into like physical branches anymore. Car wash stations, cinemas, anything with a specialised use where if the tenant leaves, they can't fill it easily without having to go the exact same type of tenant, they're obviously going to stay away from. So that's where you get down. You'll normally have to put a 50% deposit. If it's a medium risk one, then you can get away with 65% LVRs. That's right. So in industrial warehouse that has multiple uses, you can definitely get a higher LVR, 70, 60, even 80% sometimes on those types of assets. Whereas a self-storage facility, it's usually you would be expecting 50% LVR, but you would be shooting to hope to get 60 or 65%. Same with motels, same with caravan parks. Steve is exactly right saying that when you have a specialized asset that really only has one particular type of use, the banks don't seem to like lending on those as much. So they hedge their risk by having a higher deposit paid. Petrol stations are, are a big one as well. And I think, Steve, we a couple of years ago, I was talking to you about an asset. Um, it was a really, really good property. And I think it was in Melbourne too. And then we realized that the tenant was a brothel. And we're like, oh, that's why it's a really high return. That's why you can get a really, really, a really good price on that property. But yeah, um, you've really got to be careful what you're buying into because people do like a lot of the times I hear from agents who are selling self-storage facilities. We had a, a buyer, they didn't really know anything about self-storage and they said they were good for the money. And then when they've gone to the bank, they tried to get a 90% loan like it was a residential house and the banks <laughs> laughed them out of, the, out of the actual building because there's no way. I mean, in America you can get leverage on a self-storage facility up to 90% um, in some cases. But Australia's got a really tight lending policies compared to America. Those are really the assets all in between. So if you're looking for a high LVR, obviously residential is going to be the highest, but then next in line, I would say, would be a traditional warehouse that has multiple uses and also good tenants and good leases in place already. 
Yeah, one of one of the tips and tricks you can do is if you do know you're going to buy a certain type of asset class, you can get a sample contract from another property that's similar and then give that to your broker or lender to run the numbers. And then they'll typically come back with what LVR they'd be willing to give to you. And it's not foolproof, but it'll at least give you an indication of, oh, if I do buy the self-storage, this lender is offering 65% LVR. So when you do find one and you're doing negotiations, at least you're doing it well-informed. Yep, 100%. All right, last question. And this is the burning question that's really been on my mind for a long time. (laughs) It's from Jeff Miles. How does Steve maintain his beard game? Uh, thanks for that, Jeff. Uh, how long do we have? I can probably go on for a little while. But all right. First step with the beard game is obviously get a good barber. So you want to go at least once a month to get a beard trim, and then you've got to look after it as well. So me personally, and, and I'm going down the rabbit hole here, is at nighttime I put beard oil in it just to keep my skin soft and supple and the, the hair follicles nice and moist. And then... When I wake up in the morning, I give it a beard wash. So I've got a specific shampoo for my beard. So I'll wash that. Then after I get out, I've actually bought a prop from home. This is the game changer for me, Andrew. It's an electric beard brush that's got a heater in it. So you can actually straighten your beard. And then after I've straightened the beard, then I'll use a beard balm. So for moisturizing and nice smelling. And then you can kind of groom it to how you want and you are done for the rest of the day. So... Yep, I waste way too much time on my beard. Dude, it's like a part-time job keeping care of that thing. Oh my gosh. That's just like the, next the worst level. Part, the worst part is I can't even shave my beard anymore because I'm known as like the bearded buyer's agent. Like everyone's like, oh, it's like I have the beard. So I'm, I'm stuck with it now. Yeah, dude. I mean, I wanted to do the, you know, you see the Instagram where the dads scare their child, they shave the beard and then release like the towel from their face and the kids just lose it. Yeah. I mean, even when I, I never ever wet shave with a razor. I always just use clippers on like number one or number two. Um, But I just look so weird without a beard. Um, But my God, like I just, I could not stand having that thing on my face. I get sweaty and itchy. Oh, mate, I, I've tried my best and I've had a beard probably about half the size of yours. I only grew it in the winter. It was my winter beard, but I'm a reasonably hairy guy myself. So I've always tried to get rid of the hair, not incentivize it or, or, or try and make it grow more on my face, especially. So I'm glad I... um. I'm glad we've uh, got down to that, the root of that question, because it was burning on my mind. But geez, the the maintenance, just the the maintenance on that thing. What an episode. We've started on Poonamis and ended on beard care. Can it get any any worse, Andrew? (laughs) What will we do next? That's the question. All right. Well, that was the the last question. Uh, There's one more question to Steve. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you, mate, and your services? All right, so to check out the Bearded Buyers Agent, just go on any of the socials, so Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, websites, www.policyproperty.com, or email me directly at steve at policyproperty.com. But yeah, just type in Policy Property or Steve Policy on Google and I'll pop up somewhere. You better go grab that URL or handle the, the Bearded Buyers Agent. I'm sure that people are going to go snatch that now. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to go and grab oh, a free brilliant. copy of uh, both of Steve's books. Best book out there on commercial property, no doubt. Yep, sounds good, guys. Just go to the website, policyproperty.com, use the code word podcast at checkout, and you get it for free. Sounds like a, a really good deal. All right, this has been Andrew Bean and Steve Polisi on the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.
Thanks for listening to the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network. (laughs) 